Superbrain is a labour of love. Alas, no podcast can survive on love alone. We don't have a sponsor, so we need your support for Superbrain to stay alive and kicking. You can make a one-off donation by following the Support This Show link in the show or episode description. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to Superbrain, the podcast for everyone with a brain. My name is Sabina Brennan and my guest this week is Maya Rose Craig, who describes herself as a British Bangladeshi birder, environmentalist, diversity activist, as well as a writer, speaker and broadcaster. She is also described as Bird Girl, and I'm looking at a section of her website that outlines the highlights of her life so far. My mind is absolutely blown, given that this young woman is only 20. Today, I'm going to be talking to her about her memoir, which is called Bird Girl. And imagine this now, 14 publishing houses bid against each other for the right to publish her memoir. Her first book, yeah, you heard me right. Her memoir is her second book. Her first book, We Have a Dream, is shortlisted for the British Book Awards in 2022. She has shared a stage with Greta Thunberg in front of 40,000 people. She received an honorary doctorate of science in 2020 from Bristol University. She has featured in the Women of the World calendar in 2022 and the Greenpeace calendar in 2021. She's been to the Arctic. She's seen more. She's actually the youngest person to have seen more than half the birds in the world. She has rubbed shoulders with people like Sir David Attenborough, uh, Dame Jane Goodall, Banksy, Emma Thompson and Billie Eilish. She is president and founder of an organization called Black to Nature, which she set up at the age of 14 to campaign for equal access to nature for all, but with a specific focus on visible minority ethnic communities much for taking the time out of your busy schedule to speak to me this morning especially as in the last week alone you not only launched your memoir bird girl at the ripe old age of 20 um, but you've appeared on a panel alongside big names such as emma watson greta thurnberg malala yousafi yeah said it wrong uh, but now ordinarily i have to be honest i would be very skeptical of memoirs from young people in the public eye but you are indeed a young woman of substantial substance and when it comes to birds at 17 when you saw a harpy eagle in the brazilian amazon you became the youngest person to see half the birds in the world an amazing feat but on top of that you've made quite a name for yourself as an environmentalist and a diversity activist with another incredible string to your name and um, being bestowed with an honorary doctorate in science at Bristol University in 2020 the youngest person ever to achieve such an honor in the UK and um, now I'll be honest, when your publisher contacted me to know whether I would be interested, uh, well, actually, they contacted my literary agent to know whether you'd be whether I'd consider you as a guest for this podcast. I knew nothing about that, about <laughs> you. Right. I didn't. I just got the uh, bump uh, about your book, Bird Girl. And I once I read that, I immediately said yes, because I am fascinated by birds myself. Um, and uh, I'm also obviously interested in conservation. And uh, I'm not a birder, but I am fascinated uh, by birds for the same reason that I am a psychologist and a neuroscientist, because I'm fascinated by uh, uh, human behavior, uh, why we do the things we do. And I am fascinated by birds. It's really good. You have a really great way of telling a story. And there's a lot of travel in this book. 
and you really take the reader to those places. I was so impressed with your level of detail. Obviously, there's an advantage when you're a birder that you, the whole point of birding is recording the birds yeah. that you saw. So you have some of that, but yeah, the atmosphere, everything. So, um, and, and, and it's not just a book about birds. It is your memoir. And I will talk to you later about that. You do talk about your family and your parents' struggles and, uh, you know, and, and your mom's mental health and that. Mm. But before I ask you to tell me about writing the book, I, I wanted, why is 20, right? This isn't her first book. <laughs> you, you also wrote uh, a book called We Have a Dream, which was published in 2021 and was shortlisted for the British Book Awards uh, in May of this year. <laughs> you're, you're just incredible. Um, you, but your first book involved uh, interviewing others about their passions um, in terms of environmentalism and, and saving the planet. Um, Bird Girl, Girl, of course, is about your passion for, for, for birding, but it's much more personal. It's about your own inner life as well and about your family life how was the experience of writing the book itself for you yeah I'd say um even though I had we have a dream come out the year before like I think writing those two books was very very different experiences really um in that we have a dream like you said was a series of interviews of activists of color indigenous activists from around the world in terms of their climate change activism um and bird girl is a very chunky book um it is thick and i think um i don't know i sort of i'd never done anything like that before um i had kind of a year really because i was starting uni the autumn afterwards so i'd given myself a year to write it and i didn't really know where to start so i just started and um I think in some ways it was a really weird experience writing it because like you said obviously it is um really personal in a lot of ways so I spent a lot of time talking to my parents my sister about everything about all these holidays we've been on all the birds that we'd seen how we'd seen them um but it's the birds where I started really when I wasn't really sure where to begin I wrote I sort of just went right I'm going to write about this bird that I loved seeing and this bird that I loved seeing and I can weave that into the wider story and it was such an amazing way to start writing um but it was very funny talking to my parents because we did get in quite heated debates sometimes about like how exactly seeing a bird went down where they'd go like no we did it this way and this way and I'd go no I'm certain we did it this way um but in the end we all sort of came to an agreement and I think the very first bird I wrote about was um, still one of my favourites to this day. It's called a sword-billed hummingbird, which you get in, um, in well, I saw it in Ecuador, you get in South America. And I talk about falling in love with this bird through the illustrations that I spotted in the bird book and then the reality of seeing that in real life. And I love hummingbirds in general. I absolutely, they're my favourite type of bird probably. Um, and it's just this amazing sort of, dual tone green bird with a bill that's literally double the length of its body and it's just that was for me that was one of the moments that I sort of that sort of marks the falling in love with birds completely and totally and obsessively when I was eight years old and so it was it was amazing fun really to relive all of these fantastic birds that I've seen. And you know what's interesting there, because obviously I'm interested in human behavior and how the brain works and memory is one of those things. And what you've just described there is a very normal and human experience is that, um, you know, uh, uh, in fact, I've just done a piece around um, uh, uh, the fallibility of memory and 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 people often think eyewitness testimony is the most reliable and it's the most unreliable because you've just <laughs> illustrated there three people were at the same event and you all remember it differently and 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 that's just how the world is you all bring different experiences and you all have different perspectives of it so you know writing your perspective is truth that's your you know your reality of it um but you do it beautifully um beautifully in the book and you know as you said then you started with the you started with the birds but then you thread through the family story and the history and I was fascinated to learn because at the start you know you talk about that you travel around the world and I'm kind of going well what kind of background did this 
young women have that they could afford to travel around the world and I was kind of going oh they must have come from kind of some sort of you know money or do you know but actually you didn't (coughs) excuse me and in, in a way part of it kind of well your father had this passion for birds but um it also sort of stemmed from a needs must yeah as well which was quite interesting and I don't want to spoil the book for people because for me part of that was kind of learning mm. learning why and how mm. um and another thing that jumped out at me which because uh, I do wonder I do wonder in this world and you're of that generation actually um where kind of the internet has always been around for you mm. and you talk from very young about picking down these big, heavy books and looking at the birds in them. And I have spoken as well on this podcast of picking down big, heavy book that my father had. And it was about things like, um, you know, genetics and hereditary and things about people and humans and evolution. And, and I used to sit as a young child and just be fascinated about the, it by the images. And, and I suppose that sparked my interest in humans and why and who we are. Mm-hmm. And I just, I just think books are in, illustrate, illustrated books are hugely important for young children and you see so many young kids and out for dinner and they're looking at iPads and I don't think that has the same Mm. influence I I mean for you like in your book you you talk about that heavy book you don't talk about looking at images on the internet it's not the same sure it's not yeah totally and I think like I've always been someone who has absolutely adored books like um you know I was never one that my parents were trying to get me to read in fact there was a period where I was little when my parents were trying to get me to stop reading because I needed to do other things but um I so I think you know this this experience of holding these books in my house um I mentioned it in the book but we have this massive bookcase that's nearly floor to ceiling that's mm. filled with these massive tomes that are just covered in these beautiful bird illustrations and so fabulous yeah almost a character in my childhood um and so there was something really really special about that um and I don't know I think when I was very little I probably didn't go online as much as other kids did in that my parents weren't very into it I remember having to beg them for a pink DS when I was right eight because um and sort of come up with a little powerpoint where I was like this is these are the reasons that I need this <laughs> um but um like you know because because we're spending a lot of time outside and I'm not saying like I didn't spend time on the internet because of course I did um but I think there's a very different there's, there's a very big difference between um growing up with the internet in 2005 and growing up with the internet in 2015 or 2025 um and yeah I think the moment when my relationship with the internet truly began strongly was when I was 11 and I set up that bird girl blog launched myself into that online space and sort of became um very entrenched I suppose because that's I'm still there (laughs) yeah yeah and it is very powerful I'm not anti-internet you know I really am not and I've used myself obviously this podcast is on the internet and and you know I've I've found it very powerful uh, myself at times to to you know get messages across uh, and and I've found it very very helpful at times and I'm not an, anti it but I do think that there are uh, problems with it and I'm sure you've encountered it being online I'm sure you've had to to deal with negativity um as well and especially if you're dealing with ethnic diversity I'm sure there's challenges there am I wrong to say that no not at all and I think like I said I was very young really mm. back when I entered the internet properly um and you know I wasn't just being quiet either I was I was online and I was talking about things that I really cared about on my blog and on social media and you know I was talking about climate change I was talking about racism I was talking about discrimination I was talking about um you know environmental destruction and um 
I think people just really didn't appreciate that. And I think looking back, it's very weird because I think I definitely got a lot a lot more flack for that online than a lot of my like male peers who are the same age yeah. um like I think that that was very obvious um but sort of as I got a bigger following and as I became more vocal so did the so did the pushback against that and um one of the things I talk about in the book is the way that that develops a lot because it, it is really difficult and I think in some ways when I was younger I accepted it more than I do now looking backwards because when I was 14 I was like yeah that's a part of being online and having a yeah. and now I look back and I'm like who was sending comments like that to a 14 year old girl yeah um, yeah yeah I think um I one of my guests in a, in a previous season and I, I I don't know if you've come across her but if you haven't maybe have a listen to the podcast episode or read her book I think you'll find it fascinating so there definitely obviously we know there's gender differences on uh, in how uh, people are treated on the internet but she's recently written a fascinating book and I think you might find it interesting it's called The Visibility Trap and um it is about how uh, the really the gender differences uh, uh, on um, the internet and uh, her name is Mary oh gosh but if you google there the visibility trap um, her book is absolutely fascinating she goes right into social media and how for example how Instagram how Instagram particularly um, when it comes to ethnicity how it filters images of women on the internet and how we only see the white thin women and very very few ethnic women very few black women um uh on the internet um at all do, do you know what i mean that it, it literally the filtering is uh, incredible it, it it was just reading that book was a huge eye-opener for me and interviewing her was just fascinating um given your interest in ethnic diversity and I know your focus is environmentalism etc but it does matter because the voices are silenced it's not just about the body image the voices are silenced but I think in understanding what's happening it gives you a tool to help break those barriers down and but I think in addition to what you just say there you know we kind of well, my generation accepted so much more as well you know you just kind of it just sort of was an inherent acceptance to a certain way and then we stood up as well to a certain extent but also I do think so I've always been a very very outspoken person oh part of there's a part of your brain called the lateral orbitofrontal cortex okay and in people who speak out who have moral courage so they have the moral courage to speak out when so so we're social social creature creatures so normally um our, our instinct really is to conform uh, to social norms because it protects our place in society. <clears throat> Excuse me. And we take a risk when we speak out of being ostracized. So you were taking a risk at 11 years of age of, you know, you were of being, you know, ostracized or being, um, <clears throat> being, uh, vic you know, subject to abuse for what you were saying or whatever, particularly if you're speaking out. Uh, against um, racism or, or whatever. But it turns out that um, this part of the brain, um, it, it stores memories of when we experience negative uh, reactions or negative consequences of our behavior, particularly related to social consequences, okay? And in people like us who speak out, that part of the brain is particularly small it's smaller than in other people yeah isn't that interesting so that seems to mean that we we don't learn from those experiences and also we are uh more impulsive and less inhibited so in a way it is actually easier for us to speak out than other people we're kind of a bit more impulsive we 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 kind of, when we feel passionate about something that we think is a moral wrong, mm. we kind of can't contain ourselves. Yeah. We feel impelled to speak out. And it's rather interesting. And there is a, we're a small proportion of society and it's necessary that we have a small proportion of society who are prepared to do that. I find it interesting that I, I kind of find those things fascinating and it's interesting to learn about it. Yeah, no, a hundred. Selling a little or a lot? 
Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Um, yeah 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 anyway anyway when you were 14 then you also set up which we're kind of talking about here really is you set up uh, black to nature um so can you talk a little bit about that and why what it is and why you specifically focus on visible minority ethnic communities yeah um so black, black to nature is essentially it's my charity and um it's a this is incredible you know 11 blog <laughs> and, and then by 14 years um it, oh gosh sorry you um, okay yeah yeah um so black nature is my charity and it's all about fighting against racism and discrimination within environmental spaces um and i set that up originally um because I think growing up in the countryside as someone who is half Bangladeshi, has Bangladeshi family, um, I was sort of, as I got older, I was sort of increasingly aware that I never saw anyone who looked like me out in the countryside. And so I started, I said, very long story short, I essentially, I started running camps in a very sort of grassroots project way. Um, where so I how had, does a 14 year old start running camps though? Um, okay, let's go. Yeah, yeah. Okay, let's go for the long story. Uh, <laughs> no, because it just sounds so. Yeah, I started running camp, but how does a fourteen-year-old do that? Because there's things like insurance and stuff. No, you just started running them. <laughs> um, basically, when I was about thirteen, I decided for other reasons I wanted to run nature camps, just because there wasn't anything like that in the UK at the time, and I thought that sounded really fun to spend a week. Yeah doing nature-based stuff. And I'd been aware that there was a racism, that I, I suppose there was a uh, diversity issue um, within environmental spaces for a really long time. But it was when I ran this camp and it, it, um, it was very popular. A lot of people signed up, but they were all um, white teenage boys, basically, um, which nothing wrong with those, but obviously it felt very weird. That it was an event that I was running and yeah, I, I was able to connect with people apart from that group and sort of that was the light bulb moment for me where I was like actually I want to go out and I want to get other people to come to this um and so I went out and I got a bunch of um kids from Bristol I, I brought them out on this camp and I think at the time because I was already online um there were lots of people going like oh you know there are just certain groups of people that can't connect with the outdoors which is ridiculous and um the camp was really successful we proved them absolutely wrong um, and I think it was because from my own experiences, I had then proven all of that wrong, but my brain was sort of going, but then why is this an issue in the first place? Yeah. Um, and so I ended up writing to various organizations and asking, talking about my own camp and it's got bigger and bigger. And I kind of ended up running a conference the next summer in that I sort of these organizations kept on writing back and going, wow, this sounds wonderful. Come and talk to us at our headquarters. And I'd write back and go, no, I can't because I have school. Um, and so I thought, you know what? I'm going to bring them all together and I'm going to get actual people, like actual adult experts to come and talk to them. And my parents sort of gently went, you know, that's a conference, Maya. Um, so I fell into running this conference and it went really, really well. It, we basically had people from Black and Asian communities stand up at the front and go right you've been talking for decades about why this is an issue you've never come and asked us and they would just list the reasons why um there is a, a lack of diversity and why there is a feeling of racism within these spaces which i can talk about in a sec if you want um but i felt really excited because i felt yeah. like 
this they they literally gave a list of things that these organizations could do to make this better and I was like right we've basically given them the blueprint on how to solve this issue they're gonna go off and they're gonna fix it all and then I remember I was just waiting for like months and months and nothing happened yeah about six months later that I kind of had this realization that I was like right this isn't a one-off thing. This needs to be a more long-term project where I'm pushing and pushing because otherwise just nothing is going to happen. And that's insane because like you said, that was when I was 14. So that was six years ago now. Um, and it's been a project very close to my heart ever since. Um, but yeah. That's the, that's the way of the world, you know, uh, in the spaces that I work and have worked in, which would be like ageism, you know, mm -hmm. ageism is as damaging as racism, you know, and then with lots of, I mean, I know you talk about, and I totally understand it, our former president, uh, I don't know if you've encountered her actually, uh, actually um, President Mary Robinson, she's mm -hmm. big in climate change and activism, and, you know, she would talk a lot about um you know, ethnic and socioeconomic status about how climate change disproportionately affects women actually as well. And, and um, you know, um, but it's the same really with with older people, you know, um, health issues, etc. They disproportionately affect um, older people, too. But I would know the same. You would give the blueprint. You tell people exactly what has to be done, but then nothing happens. So there has to be someone like you. There has to be someone who is the driving force. There has to be someone who pushes it or some organization uh, who cares enough to keep on and on and on because the governments, the, you know, there's always someone demanding someone. It's it's horrible, but it's the he who shouts loudest mm -hmm. or creates the most, you know, hassle for them that gets what's needed. It's not right, but you kind of have to operate within within those because of the nature of the way things work. And people say that democracy is, you know, is great. It's not. It's maybe the best that we have, but it doesn't really work. And I don't think that democracy serves. I don't have that other solution and I don't think other things work. But I think by its very nature, uh, minorities suffer under mm. democracy. Yeah. Um, they really do because it's majority rules. So, so by that very nature, you know, minorities suffer. I don't know what the solution is, but if people if people voted the way democracy is supposed to work, i.e. you vote in terms of the, what is best for everyone, uh, you know, for including uh, minorities, yes, it should work, but people don't. People yeah. vote selfishly and, and that's not how democracy is supposed to work. But anyway, that's kind of going off into another thing. So that's, um, yeah, it's kind of just amazing. Um, I, I'm kind of really with you on the spending time in nature and particularly for people who do live in cities. And I hear you, you know, around the globe a lot. It, it, I find it very sad that, you know, particularly kids or people then who grow up into adults in cities who've never been outside cities, who've never seen animals up close who don't actually even understand where their food comes from let alone see nature or be in contact with nature because all the research shows us the time spent in nature is really good for your mental health and mm. your well-being and can help you have balance in life but also um, can give you space in your brain to be creative to solve problems um and and to gain insight into the world and and that brings me to another part of your book that i thread throughout your book that i really am again personally interested in and and you know throughout your book i mean your mom eventually had a diagnosis of bipolar disorder uh my father also had a diagnosis of bipolar disorder initially that was called manic depression and uh, that's what my dad uh, was diagnosed now your mum had clearly very manic episodes my father was much more in the depressive very very severe depressive which as you said in one way for you was somewhat easier than the manic episodes and I can kind of understand that um, although it's very hard to be with someone who just wants to die, that's hard. But the manic is very, it's very uncontrollable, you know. Um, 
And there's a couple of things that really interest me as, as some as a child as well who lived through it, but also as an adult, that's always with you as well. Um, but I was interested, I'll come to that part in a minute, but I was kind of interested in your husband and your husband's, in her husband's and your father's uh, efforts to help your mom, which were... And it's interesting because I think it's linked to that nature being restorative and also also the shift of focus from self, because I think with with bipolar disorder, often part of the problem is uh, just, you know, the rumination, the complete inward focus on self. And he shifted that. And I think, well, I think from reading some of your book that that worked in some ways, uh, whether you agree or not, I'm sure. But basically for the listener. Um, what 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 um, Maya Rose's dad did was, and at this point, I think in initial stages, your mom did not have a diagnosis. Um, no, so yeah, so basically, um, yeah, you 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 tell and you explain what your dad did. Basically, yeah, so I I spend a lot in the first half of the book talking about this sort of essentially mystery mental illness that my mum has. She was clearly very unwell in some capacity for a lot of my childhood, but we didn't really know what was going on. And she had been only diagnosed with depression, which just very clearly wasn't, wasn't correct. And I think for a lot of my childhood, you can see this particularly in the chapter of the little big year. I think my parents had subconsciously been using that sort of healing power of nature to manage their own mental well-being, both of them, my mum and my dad. Um, and that's always been a really important aspect to our family as a whole. But I think um, it's, it was only at the point where my mum was, um, she was sectioned when I was about 10, I think. And um, it was that summer that while she was um, being kept in hospital, that my dad made a very, very conscious effort to be taking me outdoors and be taking me bird watching because he felt, he felt like that was what would be best for me, but also was really, really important for his mental health. Even though for us at that point, it felt very strange to be bird watching without my mum because it's always been a family activity um and then essentially we had this big bird watching holiday booked for and it had been booked months before my mum was sectioned um it was it was um scheduled for a few months after she came out and we sort of had this moment where they were like god we should probably cancel this we probably can't go on this and then they had another think about it and they're like, actually, no, maybe this is the best thing that we can do right now. You know, like getting out of the country, spending time somewhere else, just spending, because on a birding trip, you're not doing anything else, literally dawn to task, <laughs> you are watching birds. Um, and I talk a bit about that very first trip, the first few days, it was really difficult. Like it wasn't some magic healing, you know, potion. My mum really, really struggled and she didn't have the attention span and she was getting really angry and things like that. But by the end of that holiday, it had so clearly made a big difference, both in terms of her mental health, my dad's mental health and us as a family, um, that my parents essentially had no choice. Oh, it, it seemed so obvious to them that they were like, right, it's birds that we need to turn to um, when things get difficult. And since then, um, you know, the second half maybe second two-thirds of the book is talking a lot about all of these amazing holidays that we've gone on and things like that but the underlying aspect of all of that is this sort of almost feeling of necessity to it all um but yeah like I think we sort of stumbled onto this healing power of nature just from the fact that we were incredibly obsessive about birds to start with and it all sort of went from there yeah, it's kind of finding itself healing. I, and I, yeah, I mean, it's, it's in a way, see, I think, yeah, I, I, and, I, and you do talk about your father's mental health because it is very, you know, you know a, a serious psychiatric disorder like that has impact on everybody. Mm -hmm. And um, when you talk about your dad's mental health, it was really just this, you know, for him, it was the strain of caring for you and and for um your mom but also he had stepped away from his own job to, to to pursue his own dreams and they were kind of that opportunity was crushed for him due to those circumstances so he was kind of dealing with with that as well um <clears throat> and I could kind of see that and I was kind of I couldn't help when reading this but 
and as you do when you're reading books but compare with my own life and and um my mom my mom couldn't care for my dad mm. she I suspect always had her own mental health issues and all she could see when my dad was ill was the impact it had on her and it was poor me look what I have to live with and that wasn't helpful do you know and it just became this vicious cycle the whole time because my father would tend my father's I don't know if your mom's was but my father's was very cyclical you know it was kind of probably every six weeks if yeah it kind of had something like that uh later life then it got much much deeper but when I was a teen <clears throat> when I was a teen it was much longer mm-hmm. I can remember when I was about 15 he took to bed for about nine months like literally just uh, you talk about that with your mom where it just kind of became normal that she yeah. was just in bed all the time mm-hmm. and uh, for my mom <clears throat> for my you talk about your mom um actively going about uh, killing herself and having very vivid um violent thoughts of killing herself now my my dad never well he I don't know how violent his thoughts were he never expressed those out loud he did talk about wanting to die but my father would have been your mom was Bangladeshi so she would have been a Muslim background my father would have been very staunch Catholic and so suicide is uh considered like an ultimate mortal sin I'm I'm atheist and it's the only thing that I would see that it actually prevented him from taking his own life, if you know what I mean, because he was so, whether that's good or bad or not, do you know what I mean? But it is the thing that stopped him from doing it. (laughs) Excuse me, he never had talking therapy and he was always on medications. Some of them weren't right. I don't know why he was never prescribed talking therapy, but as you said, uh, in and it's it, it's funny the way these things go. Um, your mom's family preferred to think of uh, spirits or being possessed or those kind of things rather than a mental illness. And in our family, I was told not to tell anybody mm. about my dad. Like it was it was uh, something to be ashamed of. Mm. um and uh I don't know whether that's where the no no talking therapy I know I suggested very things as I got older and my mother said nobody else is coming into this house do do you know that kind of way it was just um in the end he did get some different medication that made a huge difference which was very sad really because he died very shortly after that which was a shame excuse me but um yeah, it's interesting. It's it's kind of interesting. I often think this is what the, the other question I kind of wanted to ask you, because you can't help as a child, but wonder whether, because it is hereditary. And I know that I have, I can achieve huge amounts. Uh, and then I have times where I'm quite tired. And um, I don't have any diagnosis, but I do wonder whether and I do wonder sometimes whether we over-medicalize certain human conditions um, and that if we understand ourselves better. So I wonder like whether my ability to achieve huge amounts in another context, if I didn't have a focus for my energy that is meaningful, whether that would be directed at something silly and then become diagnosed as something, you know, and then when I feel tired now and feel I've achieved something, whether that then would become a depression because I have nothing. Does that make sense? What I'm saying is that I feel that I have great energy. I can focus, I can write a book, I can do my blog, I can do all those things. And then I can say, gosh, now to avoid burnout, I need to take a rest and then I will be able to achieve something else. But because it's focused, it's not an illness. Does, does, does that yeah. me, make sense to you? And would you consider that a, a sort of a viable kind of thesis? Or I don't know. I think I think it's interesting to think about what you call you know the over medicalization of things. Because um, so I guess like my personal definition of 
mental illness would be when it makes your life significantly harder or different or when you struggle to function in society and um I remember after my mum got sectioned and they've um the doctors and stuff made me go to talking therapy which I talk about in the book and I hated it um I hated it so much and um part one part of the reason I hated it was because they'd always go like how do you feel now that your mum has bipolar and 10 year old me was be like that makes no sense she has always been like this and for me there was not there wasn't really a separation between my mum and this mental illness and she for my whole life she'd gone through these um you know these depressive episodes and these big explosions of energy these manic episodes where you know she was going to be the person to fix everything and make everything better and she'd just always been like that yeah um and so that was really really frustrating for me as a child because I just didn't I felt like no one really understood um and I think subsequently since then because um over the years like we have found the perfect combination of meds for mum and I think even though it's really easy to look back and look at especially those manic episodes and be like wow you know they were so productive they were so exciting you know she's really fun sometimes or you know she got so much stuff you know whatever like um I look at her now and I can just tell how much more focused how much happier she feels now that she has balance in her life because I think that's the difficulty with bipolar is you can never quite balance yourself in life because you're always swinging one way or the other mm-hmm. I think that was difficult for both us and um I think control is probably the slight difference there and I, I, I agree with you I agree with you totally on your definition that it is when it interferes with your ability to actually enjoy your life you know to carry out your life as as and I do think we over we do over medical we do over medicalize you know it's quite normal to feel down at certain points in your life and and it's quite normal to feel exhilarated and you know amazing and it's quite normal to feel oh my god I can do loads of stuff you know they're just normal that you you know we go through these highs and lows uh, and it's just important to recognize those and it's not good to feel totally out of control Mm. you know that's where it does get and 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 it's also it's yeah exactly it's not it's not normal to feel you know so far down that you can't get out I mean that's what my father used to describe you know he said I'm just down this black hole and, 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 and it's just so far down, I can't get out. And, and, and that's a very different space, you know, um, we are kind of coming towards the end of, uh, of our, of our time. Um, I, you know, you've met so many inspirational people, uh, so many of, of whom I admire, um, who, it's probably not a very fair question, but of all the people you have met, who would you say has inspired you the most or, 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 or that's not fair, isn't it? <laughs> um, this is going to be a weird answer. Um, because you're right, I've met lots of very cool people. I've met David Attenborough. I know, I have him down here. (laughs) Like, I've met some very, very cool people. But I think, actually, I was thinking about this the other day. um, And this was one of the lovely things about writing the book, actually, because I got to rehash some very lovely things. Um, But I think, genuinely, like, I know this is very cheesy, but this is also genuine. Like, the biggest inspiration in my life has been my older sister. Like, I I think the reason that I stayed so connected with bird watching in the outdoors throughout my very young childhood was because I had her as a role model to look up to she is 12 years older than me and Mm -hmm. I was a very very cool teenager when I was little and so I wanted to do everything she did including bird watching um and she has just been so strong and so amazing and these days she does so much stuff for black to nature as well and she's just I don't know I love her a lot and um I don't know it's all very cool but I think that's lovely no that's lovely that's really really nice I think that's really really nice how has how has your mom felt about you writing her about her in the book my mom um actually (laughs) because the weird thing about the book is originally when I was first sketching it out it was a book about birds and 
not really about any of the other stuff. No, I think the other stuff um, is really important. Yeah, yeah. And it was as I was writing it and I was writing about us, for example, going on these really, really long trips to other countries. And I was like, this just doesn't, this isn't the whole story. It doesn't make any yeah. sense. And so I had this realization, I, it was going to be far more, far more personal than I had originally intended. And I sat down and I had a conversation with my parents, with my mum about it. And she felt that that was a really positive thing. And mm. we talked a lot about the importance of representation. And she talked a lot about like the importance of telling really, really honest stories basically. And what, and I, I suppose we both came to the conclusion that being very raw and being very honest was the best way to go. Cause there is still a lack of those stories out there. And like, I think one of the things that I, um, I felt was really important in the book is that the bipolar, the mental illness in and of itself isn't really presented as a negative thing. It just kind of is. Um, and, you know, I, I felt like that was really important because it's not going to go away. I remember originally when I was sketching it out, like um, one of my editors made a comment on the very last chapter and they were like, oh, and then we can have like a happily ever after. And it was kind of a joke, but I was like, that's just, that's just not how it works. It's just there forever and that's kind of, that's okay. Um, and so I wanted to show all the positives and the negatives of it all. And actually she was very excited about telling that story. And it was a very close collaboration with her in terms of figuring out how to tell that in the best way possible, especially in terms of the stuff when I was a kid and probably didn't really know what was going on at the time. Um, but yeah, I think even though, like I said, it's obviously far more personal than I was originally intending when I first pitched the idea of writing a book. Um, I'm so happy, I'm so excited with what's been produced. And I feel like, like I said, it's so important to have these conversations in just a very honest, relaxed way. And I love it. No, I love it. And I tell you one of the reasons I love it is because I think there's a bit of, been a bit of bandwagging in, wagoning in recent years where people, sort of everyone seems to say, oh, I have anxiety, oh, I have depression, oh, I have, and, and, and not in the real, you know, in this real serious sense, if, if you know what I mean. Yes, we all have a bit of anxiety. Yes, we all have a bit of depression, but these very serious, and I'm not, I'm, I'm not dissing when people have anxiety or when people have depression. Yes, that's tough you know, at the time, but these kind of very much more deep psychiatric conditions are very life changing and, and have very, very big impacts on families. Um, but they're not always they're They're life forming, life changing and not always negative. Yeah. That's you know, and, and, and I think that's the thing I would say my father and mother's mental health issues very much shaped me and my siblings I feel in a way they shaped me uh some of my personality may not be you know all positive but I think they shaped me in a way to who I am and that's it and to what I have achieved and 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 that's it that's who I am and 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 that's part of life and I think most of it is positive and I think they've shaped you very very positively and you are who you are because of that you would have been a very different person I think if you didn't have these things you know I'm not sure you would have been an activist do you know you definitely wouldn't have been a murder <laughs> do you know absolutely yeah 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 no and I I, I think listeners it is really a fabulous read um whether you're into birds or not uh the just the story of it um is fabulous and and um it's 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 an entertaining read it's also i'll always love a book that takes you to other places and cultures and so you do get that as well and the birds are the birds are kind of fascinating but your family story is really really fascinating so what is next you're studying politics and international relations Am I correct? Yeah, yeah. Um, so Maya Rose in five years, 10 years, 20 years, <laughs> any ideas or you think? Um, I'll not lie, I don't really know what I want to do after uni, but I think looking ahead, like the two things that feel like they're going to be very consistent in my life is, you know, the activism and the campaigning, that side of things, which even if it's not necessarily about what I'm campaigning about now, I feel like I'm always going to be out there. Well, it's like you were talking about earlier. I'm always going to be out there talking about 
issues that I care about and things that I care about. Um, and I think the other one is just bird watching. I'm always going to be bird watching, and the rest of it can sort of fall into place after those two, I suppose. Yeah, once you've found your passion, and I think you're very, very fortunate to have found your passion so early on. You know, I do think it is because that's what life is all about. Find your passion, your joy, and then you can be present in the moment for a lot of the time. So I always like to end on um, if you would like to share with the listeners um, just one piece of advice on thriving and surviving in life and or surviving life. Yeah, yeah, both. I think obviously I'm very biased, but I think spending time outdoors is just so good for you. Like, obviously, I talk a lot in the book about how it helped me and my family, but we're in a period where even the NHS is doing green prescribing and things like that. It's so good for you. And I think such a nice way to do that is, again, not biased, is bird watching. Because um, in that, like, one of the reasons I love birds is because they're everywhere. You know, I've been sat chatting to you and I've been watching birds through the window. They're constantly flying around. You don't need to go and track them down. And you don't need any fancy equipment. You don't need the binoculars. You just need eyes. And so I think just going and sitting in even the local park and just watching the birds fly around for 10, 15, 20 minutes is so good for you and so good for your brain and making that, um, making space for quiet moments in your life outside is so good for you. Like I could not recommend more. Totally second that. And that's actually what I'm going to do now. I'm going to work in the garden today. That's the plan. And what I love about working in the garden is the birds are hovering close by and the robins particularly come down to grab whatever you've worked on. Thanks, Amelia Maya. That has been amazing. What an incredible and inspirational young woman. My name is Sabina Brennan, and you have been listening to Super Brain, the podcast for everyone with a brain. You can follow me on Twitter at Sabina underscore Brennan and Instagram at Sabina Brennan. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.